There is little in this world that frustrates more than someone who goes back on their word. You ever, you ever had that? Am I the only one that finds that incredibly frustrating? Someone who says one thing and then does another thing entirely. Perhaps it's something that you've fallen victim of yourself, or if we reflect, we have been guilty of doing ourselves. Perhaps not on purpose, but it can happen. Perhaps someone has made a promise and has failed to follow through on it. Perhaps someone has made a profession to believe one thing, but when the rubber hits the road, their actions prove that their conviction actually wasn't as strong as they let on that it was. And of course, none of us are immune to this. Sometimes with the best of intentions, we can get it wrong and we can make a mistake. But there are just other instances where we know what we believe, why we believe it, but for reasons perhaps of comfort or convenience or even cowardice, we choose to do the opposite. Our passage today, James chapter 2 verses 14 to 16, which Jeannie read out in its entirety for us earlier on, paints a very clear picture for us. It is as though James, the writer, is making a plea for some realism, as though he is calling the original readers and hearers to wise up to wise up and follow through on the convictions which they profess. That he is clearly communicating to them that it is one thing to profess faith, but that it should not be an entirely different thing to live it out as well. He says this. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but has no deeds. Can such faith save them? It's as though James, and by this stage he's probably the age of a grandfather, and I like to imagine that James wrote this letter round the log fire, and he was just pouring out some grandfatherly wisdom to the people, inspired by the Spirit. And it's as though James, in this grandfatherly wisdom, is rallying around the early church and is saying to them that actions speak louder than words. And the reality of these words, which are found in the living word of the living God for us, his living people, is that these words which he penned are as much for us as they were for the original hearers. He says faith by itself is not accompanied by action, is dead. In short, James is communicating this truth. That to claim faith in the Lord Jesus Christ without doing what he tells us to do is to simply deceive ourselves. You see, not, not to do what he says by extension is to disobey him. And faith and disobedience are contradictory terms. Anybody who has children or anybody who has looked after children knows that very often whenever you ask them to do something, they will do the opposite because it's funny, right? You ever, you ever fallen victim to that yourself? 
Sophia didn't want to sleep last night. And it says that it was getting to the point where I just wanted to tell her, don't go to sleep. And that way she might have actually gone to sleep. And Jesus is saying, well, James is saying, and the Spirit is saying to us through James here, that to profess to follow Jesus and then not to do what he tells us to do or asks us to do is like being a perpetual child who does the opposite of what they know to be true. And something that's lost in the original language, uh, lost in translation rather from the original language, this letter would have been written in the Greek language. Um, the Greek language actually has one word which covers unbelief and disobedience. So unbelief and disobedience in the Greek are actually the same thing. That means then that to claim faith in Christ Jesus, yet not actually do what he says, then actually that's impossible. To claim faith in Christ and then not do what he says, it's a wild contradiction. In a famous passage found in John chapter 3, I'm not going to talk about verse 16, but I'm going to talk about verse 36. Bearing in mind that disobedience, disobedience and unbelief are derived from the same word and mean the same thing. It says this in John chapter 3, I thought it was there, it's not, verse 36. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not, does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. You see, faith and obedience are two sides of the one coin. You've heard that phrase, haven't you? Two sides of the one coin. Faith and obedience should and must go hand in hand. There are two sides of the one coin. Our faith in the Lord Jesus cannot be a private affair. For true faith leads to action. It leads to deeds. And deeds must be lived out. A modern day theologian that I enjoy his writings and videos is a man called Francis Chan. And he said this, and I think this sums up very well the point that James is trying to get across here. It says, lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They, on they want only to be saved from the penalty of their sin. You see, the definition of being lukewarm is to claim faith without being obedient to Christ and to his word. And we are told that such people in Revelation... In the letters to the church, Jesus says, lukewarm people will be spat out of his mouth. A vivid and distressing picture, but one which, by being thankful and obedient, we need not fear. It's important, therefore, that we are not found in a lukewarm state where we claim faith and our lives don't portray it. We've all heard it. We've all used it. To be honest, none of us have probably meant it. 
whenever we've said it, but who's heard or used this phrase? It's the thought that counts. What a load of toffee. Right? It's the thought that counts. That's the phrase that nobody wants you to say to them. And it's the phrase that you want nobody to say to you. The phrase that is used when someone perhaps has worked tirelessly to try and make something happen only for it to fall short and not meet expectations or to fall flat on the face. Oh, I suppose it's the thought that counts. Or similarly, it's a phrase which is used by others as an excuse for not finishing something or not buying that gift. A phrase which is thrown around to disguise bad behaviour. Valentine's Day is coming up, man. This is your fortnightly, remem- uh, fortnightly reminder, right? And regardless of what our views may be on Valentine's Day, our loved one loves to be loved. And you cannot show up on Valentine's Day and say, I was going to buy you a card. I was going to buy you um, a a hotel stay away. I was going to buy you a box of chocolates, but I didn't. But I suppose it's the thought that counts. You will be met with a swift glare. And I'm not just talking to the men in the room. I'm talking to the women in the room too, because men do like to be romanced, whether they admit it aloud or not. We love to be loved, don't we? And sometimes it's the thought that counts just does not cut it. It's something which is often said from a place of hindsight or to mask disappointment. Having known what should have been done and recognising that it wasn't. It's the thought that counts. When it comes to a, a life of true faith, this phrase could not be farther from the truth. When it comes to a life of true faith, a life lived for Christ and in relationship with Christ, faith is always backed up with action. It's not that we just think about doing it, it's that we actually go and do it. James, as we're beginning to see more and more as we journey through this series, James doesn't hold back any punches. And he writes to the early church and here in no uncertain terms, he is calling them and by extension calling us to live lives which back up the truths which we profess. Lest they or we are left spiritually dead. There's no back doors with that, is there? No back doors. He says... Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by deeds. He also says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? You see, church, when a person is justified by accepting the free gift of salvation through faith in Christ alone, something changes within the very depths of that individual. We are told that the very nature of that person changes. That their old nature, which back back in the old days was referred to as the old man. That the old man departs and is replaced by a new creation. Not only does faith in the Lord Jesus Christ save, but the faith that saves is never alone. 
It never comes on its own. Rather, it is gradually backed up by action in the life of the individual as the Holy Spirit enters in and does that work of sanctification, that forming more and more into the likeness of Christ. And as we become more and more like him, we start to live lives which reflect more and more his life which whilst here on earth was a life which was lived in service of his father for the benefit of those who came in contact with him. This life of true saving faith is marked by a life which is not wrapped up in shallow sentiment, not a life that doesn't simply know the right thing to do, but rather is a life which doesn't just hear God's word, but actually does what it says. Adam Clark put it this way. He says, You're pretending to have faith while you have no works of charity or mercy is utterly vain. For as faith, which is a principle of the mind, cannot be discerned by the effects, that is, good works. He who has no good works has, presumptively, no faith. Church, a living faith is simply real faith. If we believe something, we will follow through and we will act upon it. If we, are, if we have a conviction, you can tell people who have conviction about something from those who are just along for the ride, can't you? If somebody is has a, a complete and utter conviction about something, they will follow through on that thing no matter what. No matter the cost, no matter the ridicule they might receive, they will follow through on it. If we really put our faith and trust in Jesus, we will care for those whom Jesus cares about. Created in his image. That means that we will care for the orphan and for the widow, that we will care for the poor and for the lowly, that we will care for the rowdy and for the childish. Those in our lives who are still in need of the saving faith which we have experienced. Just as he told us to do so. Shallow sentiment, that it's the thought that counts, that kind of attitude will simply no longer cut it. Church, outside of these walls, people are dying. People are dying and are headed for a Christless eternity. And we have a responsibility as the redeemed of the Lord, not only to tell them of the love of Christ but also to show them in the way in which we live. We simply cannot be people who talk and have no action. For as we were reminded earlier, faith and obedience are two sides of the one coin. So let's be brave. Let us begin to live bold, uncompromising lives of faith outside the walls of the church because it's easy to live it inside.
It's easy to live it when we're gathered with people who think like us, who sing the same songs that we sing, who think the same way that we think, who maybe dress the same way that we dress and do the same things that we do. That's easy. But true faith is whenever we do that in our everyday. True faith is whenever we do not compromise who we are depending upon who we are with. True faith is when we live for Jesus, when it's not easy. True faith is when we live for Jesus, even when it's difficult. And even when nobody around about us is doing the same thing. Because faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin. And we need to live lives of bold faith. Lives which look to Christ, not to self. Lives which agree with his word, both inwardly, but also outwardly. Also living out his word. Lives which are grounded in the reality of what Jesus did on the cross. And the reality that the tomb is still empty. Lives which lead to repentance and good works. Lives which desire that more and others and those who we come in contact with would come into the same knowledge and experience of saving faith in Christ that we have. A life that cares about the things which Christ cares about and actually put into action that which he lived and taught. You see, when this happens, church, lives are transformed when this happens lives are transformed by the goodness and grace of christ as people not only hear the word but also see the fruits of faith at work before their very eyes i told you this before but it was a couple of years ago so i'm going to tell you again People ask me, and any time I have the privilege of sharing my faith story, we call it our testimony. Anytime I have the privilege of sharing my testimony, I always point back to the fact that I grew up in a home. Now, it was a minister's home, and Dad was very good at telling people how much Jesus loved them. And Mum was very good at doing the same. But I grew up in a home where the love of God was not only taught, but it was shown. It was not only taught, but it was shown. I know a lot of other ministers' kids that if you ask them where they are at in their faith journey, they will tell you that they've turned their back on the church, that they want nothing to do with Christianity, that they've seen the ugly side of this and they've seen the ugly side of that and they just want to walk away and they want nothing to do with it. And sadly, that's all too common a story, not only in ministers' households, but also in the households of believers. It is imperative, it is fundamentally important that we don't just talk a good game, that we don't just tell people, and telling people has its place because how will they know if they are not told, but that we don't just tell them, but that we show them. Many of you will have heard of Gandhi. I'd be very surprised that if anybody apart from the babies in the room hadn't heard of Gandhi. And Gandhi was asked about the different faiths 
of the world. And his response whenever the question around Christianity came up was something, and I'm paraphrasing him slightly because I don't, couldn't find the direct quote because it was different on different websites. But he, he said something along these lines. I love their Christ, but I don't like their Christians. I love their Christs, their Christ, but I don't like their Christians. And he was pressed on that and he went, well, what do you mean? And he says, they talk, again, Gandhi wouldn't have put it like this, but they, they essentially said, they talk a good game, but they don't bag it up. They talk a good game, but they don't back it up. You see, whenever the Christian faith, in its truest sense, is backed up in deeds, when it's backed up in the way that the people of God live, transformation happens. Communities are changed. Lives are transformed. And that means that you and I have a responsibility. We are kingdom bearers. We are ambassadors for Christ in this world. That's what the scripture tells us. And it's about time. And I include myself in this. Because the Lord must first speak to me. I include myself when I say it's about time that we live lives that backed up that which we professed. Because if the world was full of more people like Jesus, if the world was full of Christians who took seriously the challenge of Scripture to live as Christ himself lived, the world would be a completely different place. And it would be transformed. And we have our part to play. It is the Spirit's job to convict people of their sin, just as he convicted me and many of you. But it is our job to live a life worthy of the calling that we have and to live for Christ. Now in order to further illustrate this point to the people, James uses two prominent examples from the history of the people of Israel. Two, two contrasting stories from two very different individuals. But whose stories share one unified point. That no one has ever and no one will ever be counted as righteous without good works becoming an outworking of their faith. First that he uses is Abraham. And Abraham is considered even to this day as the father of the Jewish nation. A man who is still highly revered and having made a covenant with the Lord God, believing him, even in light of impossible odds, had his faith counted to him as righteousness. You see, if you don't know the story, or maybe we need to be reminded of the story, in his old age, God promised that Abraham, even though his wife Sarai was unable to have children, that Abraham would become the father of nations, and that his descendants would be as numerous as the grains of sand upon the earth. And when his son Isaac was born to him, God instructed Abraham to take him up a mountain and offer him as a sacrifice to the Lord. 
Now, I understand that this story sounds a wee bit bonkers and sounds a wee bit barbaric. But Abraham, being a, a man of deep faith and conviction and trusting in the Lord, he went up the hill and prepared the sacrifice just as the Lord had commanded. However, at the 11th hour, the Lord provided a ram for the sacrifice instead, and Isaac was spared. And Abraham's faith was counted unto him as righteousness before the Lord. God, God never had any intention of having Isaac sacrificed that day. However, the lesson from Abraham here is clear. That if we believe God, we will do what he tells us to do. If we believe and trust in God, we will believe and do what he tells us to do. Even when it doesn't make sense. Because his ways are higher than ours and his thoughts are not our thoughts. You see, faith finds truth and righteousness through obedience. And I wonder what God is asking of you today. I wonder what that thing that might not necessarily make sense right now is. What is God asking of you today? True saving faith responds, here I am Lord, use me. But then there's Rahab. Contrasting Abraham and Rahab is no accident. Um, Rahab, you might remember, was a prostitute from Canaan. And as the people of Israel sent spies into the land of Canaan, the land which the Lord had promised them, this immoral woman, this immoral woman hid two of the spies and saved them from certain death. And as a result, her and her family were spared when the people of Israel subdued and occupied the land. She herself, by saving them from certain death, was saved from certain death. And whilst it might not appear this way on the surface, Rahab's story illustrates to us that faith redeems, faith redeems and lifts the fallen. That those who were once far off are brought near. That as we often sing, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. You see, if you follow Rahab's story through the scriptures, Rahab married, I'm going to call him Salmon, but it's Salmon, who was a man from the tribe of Judah. And together they had a son named Boaz, who became the kinsman redeemer and married a Moabite's widow by the name of Ruth. And together Boaz and Ruth had a son named Obed, who himself had a son named Jesse. And Jesse, along with seven other sons, had a son by the name of David, a shepherd boy, who would become king of the people of Israel. And from whose lineage, if you follow it through, would come Jesus, the Messiah, the saviour of the world. You see, from the line of this promiscuous woman who turned to a life of faith, would come the saviour of the world. Perfect redemption. 
Faith without works is death. But real living faith changes the course of history. Real living faith changes the course of history. Church, faith alone cannot save, for faith without works is dead. Today, might we be a covenant people who make a covenant to God and to one another that we might become a people not of all talk and no action, but a people who talk the talk and walk the walk. A people who take God at his word and actually do what it says. A people who declare once again that head knowledge will not suffice, but that heart knowledge which leads to action in step with the Spirit is now the only way that we will live. So what should I do when I'm all talk and no action? Trust him. Press into him. Take him at his word and in obedience. Allow him to change you from the inside out and lead you where your trust is without borders. That you might be and that we might be the church that God has called us to be. And that those who we come in contact with during the week need us to be. Amen? Amen. Let's stand in response as we sing together.